Here's a little fun fact. Did you know that for over five years, I taught thousands of people at hundreds of different events, both in person and online, how to grow their businesses. And I did this for Google. And now I want to do it for you. I'm offering up some special complimentary coaching opportunities for a few lucky wise squirrels. Visit wisequirrels.com slash coaching. Welcome to Wise Squirrels, the podcast for late diagnosed adults with ADHD. I'm your host, Dave Delaney. If you haven't checked it out yet, I relaunched my email newsletter called The Nice Maker. Now, originally I had a Wise Squirrels email newsletter as well, but then I realized I bit off way more than I could chew. Something about ADHD, I think. And I decided to use Substack for the Nice Maker. So you can find it at nicemaker.substack.com. And I include articles and inspiration stories, some my personal stories, some that are inspired by others. But I'm including content for ADHDers, my fellow wise squirrels. So I do encourage you to check it out. I included uh, some pretty cool things just in the uh, most recent edition. And speaking of Substack and newsletters and stuff, uh, the reason why I mentioned that too is because James Fell really inspired me to uh, go for it, to use my own Substack as well. He's done very well with his, which I highly recommend you check out at jamesfell.substack.com. Now, James is the author of two volumes of best-selling sweary history books that are titled, ready? There's a curse word here. On this day in history, shit went down. That's right. This episode's explicit. So, you know, put the kids away. James has bylines in the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, The Guardian, Time Magazine, and many others. And prior to switching to writing history, he wrote about fitness and the science of motivation. His previous two books are The Holy Shit Moment, How Lasting Change Can Happen in an Instant, and Lose It Right a brutally honest three-stage program to help you get fit and lose weight without losing your mind. So I began our conversation today by asking James about his diagnosis with ADHD at 53. That's right. James himself is a fellow wise squirrel. So you were diagnosed with ADHD at 53, right? Yeah. Okay. And yeah, so I was, I was diagnosed last year at 50. It's been, uh, yeah, been a a pretty wild ride. So you, your background is in, is in fitness, right? So you started writing as a, a, as a fitness writer. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I'd done a master's degree in history. Yeah. I finished in 96. Mm Mm-hmm. And had thought about becoming a professor, but it just, you know, with staying in Calgary and being married and having kids, it just, it wasn't going to work out. So I ended up getting an MBA so I could get a job. Mm. And, uh, and I worked in marketing till the age of 40. And I really didn't like the whole marketing thing. Like it was just, uh, I, I did it for a paycheck. Right. And, but I'd really because of the because of the history background i learned to love telling stories learned to love writing and the choice of becoming a fitness writer was that was a that was a strategic marketing decision 
Mm. My my goal. Are are we like recording now? Or are we? Yeah, we're recording. recording. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so you might want to edit that part out. My goal uh, was to become a full time writer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I thought about, oh, well, I could write a novel. And then I did some research and I'm like, the, the, the likelihood of making it as a novelist, like making a living at it was mm-hmm. so remote that my marketing brain just said, yeah, okay, you need to make a better strategic decision here. Yeah. And fitness was something that from a strategic marketing perspective, I looked at and thought I can make a living doing that full time. Um, because, you know, I, it it was sort of like in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the fitness writers were just not very good. Mm. And, uh, I thought, okay, there are enough opportunities via freelancing and writing books and maybe some consulting and speaking. Like there's enough revenue, uh, opportunities writing about fitness, weight loss, et cetera, that I could make enough money at it to, to do it full time because I wanted to quit my marketing job. Mm. And uh, and I still ended up doing a lot of marketing, but I was selling myself now, which was um, uh, a lot more, well, tolerable, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's why I chose fitness because I knew a lot about it. And uh, I wasn't like, you know, a, a recognized expert, but but I was I was a good storyteller and I was a good writer and and so I interviewed experts and and uh, you know within a year of starting I had a column in the L.A. Times and then a couple of years after that I had a column in the Chicago Tribune that was getting republished mm. all over the world and I had books published and all that kind of thing but it was uh, it it was not my true calling and after about a decade or so I I started to get bored with it. Tell me about the military history course lecturer that you t- had in college who was the one that kind of inspired you to get excited about history. Oh, okay. So the um, the the prof's name, um, I suspect, you know, just knowing how old he was back then, that would have been 1991. So he's probably not with us any longer, I would guess. Right, right. But his name was uh, Les Nuttall, I remember his name. Um, and the course was, uh, I think it was Military History from Napoleon to the Present. Mm. And he was just such a dynamic storyteller that, you know, I'd been flunking out of university and because uh, and, I hadn't yet found my thing. Right. And I take this one course with this professor that was just, told such great stories that it's like, okay, I'm, I'm actually really into this. This guy has inspired me to learn more about history. And it, it worked well uh, because the only thing that I'd really sort of enjoyed reading when I was younger was, you know, fantasy novels. Mm. Uh, well, also science fiction, but I, I read a lot of fantasy. And this was like, okay, there's a connection here because history is, is you know, it's got the swords, not the sorcery, but mm-hmm. uh, but this is a legitimate thing that I can study and get a degree in that is in line with, you know, a previous passion of mine of, of reading fantasy novels. So I ended up becoming hyper fixated on it and, and taking, you know, every possible history course that they would let me mm. and ended up, you know, doing really well and eventually getting a master's degree in it. And do you think the like at the time, did you realize, I mean, obviously you were thinking, you know, focusing on history, but also on the fact that 
you know, obviously a, a good lecturer, I would imagine, would be a great storyteller and, and being able to weave in great stories to get you interested in history. And, and by retelling those stories, whether it's, you know, verbally or writing or whatever, you've got to be a good storyteller. So how does storytelling kind of weave into that? Like, did you realize, ooh, like stories, like there's a connection there? Or did you realize kind of later on? Um, I mean, I didn't give it a, a lot of thought. It was just, you know, there was a light went off in terms of finally there is something that is kind of legitimately accepted mm. um, that, that, I can, that I can study. Right. That, uh, that my brain doesn't just say, I'm bored, that I have to constantly power through. Like for the first time in my life at the age of, I don't know, 22, mm. there was a passion for something academic because mm -hmm. I'd been a C, I'd barely passed high school. You know, this was back when it was really easy to get into university at the University of Calgary. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was a C student. I went to university, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to university right away. I, I worked, you know, as construction labor, bartender, all that kind of stuff, bank teller, mm -hmm. um, for a couple of years, didn't like any of those jobs, uh, and the, uh, thought, okay, fine, I'll go to university and promptly began failing because I just, I wasn't interested yeah. in any of the stuff that I was learning. And then for the first time I take this one course and I'm like, this is interesting and it allowed me to learn how to write because I, I read so much that, you know, some of it, it had been become ingrained. I mean, that Stephen King, uh, says that, you know, the best way to become a good writer is to read a lot and to write a lot. And mm -hmm. so I'd done the reading a lot part. And then when it came to taking history classes, it was like, okay, now I have an opportunity to, to read a whole bunch of different facts from a bunch of different sources and then weave it into my own narrative yeah. and actually create something and get good grades on it because, you know, my, it took a while before I got good at it, but I was, it was like, I was, wasn't just determined to get good grades, but it was like, I wanted to tell a good story in the papers that I was writing and actually entertain the professor mm. and have the professor think that, Hey, this was well-written. This guy can, this guy can write. And, and so it just, it kind of took off from there. And then I remember my defense committee for my master's, uh, thesis defense, the, uh, the out of department guy was from, uh, the poli sci department and he was the first guy to speak up during the defense. And he said he found my thesis very entertaining. <laughs> I was like, all right, we're off to a good start here. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I, have you thought about like the connection between, storytelling as a, like a, cause you were a waiter, a bartender, uh, you know, uh, even working in construction or I know you planted trees as well, like yeah. that kind of work. I mean, when you're kind of working in the field or forest, so to speak, you know, you're probably just chattering to uh, other people around you during the day. And then certainly as a good, uh, uh, speaking as a recovering server myself, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I actually enjoy, I, I love the work because of the, the interaction and conversation. So do you think that storytelling kind of played a, a role in, in those roles? I mean, a bank, no. te bank teller, probably not as much, but. No, actually, I, I don't think it did mm. um, because I really did not like any of those jobs. And well, I mean, if it did, it was indirect. 
yeah. because um, I was always a daydreamer. Mm-hmm. Um, I told myself stories that, you know, I would like to insert myself into books that I'd read or, you know, just I, I had a very active imagination where I was often, um, you know, getting into trouble at work because I was distracted. Because mm-hmm. I was I was daydreaming about somewhere else I would much rather be. Yeah. And so when it came time to start writing, uh, it seemed very natural to me because I was taking that storytelling ability that had been running like a you know a, a hamster on a wheel mm-hmm. through my head for my entire life, and finally finding an outlet for it. Yeah. And uh, you know I would. Sometimes when I was hanging out with friends, I would, I would, you know, sort of be a chatty guy, but you know, not, not always a, a ton. Mm. Um, but that, that, and one of the reasons why I went into marketing after doing my master's degree was because, you know, I needed to get a job and I had this master's in history, which wasn't really going to help much. And it was my mother that suggested that, okay, well, if you're not going to do a PhD, you could do an MBA and that would make you very hireable. You know, you would be able to, to make a good living at that. Yeah. You could do stock, a stockbroker, right? Like she, she was big into the stocks. Oh yeah. And she, she wanted me to go work with her, but there wasn't enough Ritalin in the world to get me to do that job (laughs) Uh, because, you know, just the whole number crunching thing, it seemed so unreal. Like there's hmm. your, it's numbers on a screen and trade this and trade that and, and money is pretend. And I just, I couldn't wrap my brain around it. Yeah. Whereas, um, when it came to going into marketing, a lot of it was writing and you, okay, you research stuff and then you tell people what you think and you communicate. And so there was a lot of sort of strategic planning and, and thinking and writing. So I was able to use my creative writing skills to have a pretty good marketing career, even though. I was writing about boring shit like technology and whatever. Yeah. And uh, do you mind if I swear on this? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. It's, it's, I'm the sweary historian. So yeah, boring. Yes. It, it, I, I did it because I had to do it. You know, yeah. I had a, a wife and kids that I needed to support. And, and so I, I powered through, but, but, you know, by the age of 40, it was like, I cannot do this bullshit anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, with a very supportive wife, I uh, I ended up getting a part-time executive director role that paid quite well. And I did that for two and a half years while I launched my writing career until it got to the point where I could do it full-time. And that's when you started writing about fitness, your body yeah. for body for wife, I believe came yeah. from... And, and by the way, body for wife is interesting because or the, the story that, that I understand with it, because you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like you were, you had set a date to propose to your wife and wanted to be fit, you know, <laughs> you know to be, to be in good shape, you know, for that big day. And, and yeah. by the way, like taking a step back when I, when I learned about this, about you, I thought that's really interesting because with undiagnosed ADHD, ADHDers, and again, generalizing, of course, being the the novice that that I am, but learning every day more and more. ADHD years tend to do very well when there is a date, when there is a deadline. When you have a mm-hmm. deadline, uh, like a hard date, that really does help you, even if it's an arbitrary date out of the air. So 
I, I was curious when, when I read about that, that you had this date in mind, I assume, to propose to your wife and you wanted to get in shape ahead of that date. Have, uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? That, I mean, that makes sense. I, I actually didn't know that, um, that having deadlines helped drive people with ADHD because it's not something that I've really done a bunch of research into myself. Mm. It's just like, oh, I have it far out. And yeah. uh, so, but that makes sense because what triggered it was um, I had been thinking about proposing and I thought, okay, well, it was, it was early September and, um, and we'd just gotten back from a, a summer vacation and I was thinking about proposing on Valentine's Day. Hmm. And, uh, and we, we gotten back from vacation and I saw, we got our, our pictures back from the developer. It was that long ago. <laughs> it was 19, <laughs> 1993. Yeah. And I'm looking and I'm like, wow, I really, I, I just graduated from my undergrad and I'm like, wow, I really put on the freshman 15 times like three, uh, <laughs> you know, seeing these beach photos of, I'd gotten very flabby and, uh, I thought, okay, uh, it just popped into my head that, uh, well, if I'm going to propose in mid February, I should, I should get in shape. And so I, I got sort of like halfway there. I didn't really set any sort of weight loss goals, but you know, by mid February, I was in quite a bit better shape, mm. but I just, I kept going because by that time, um, I developed a passion for it, but it was a rough start. It was not, you know, instantly, um, you know, passionate about it. It yeah. was the first couple of months were pretty rough. And, uh, but I was at university all the time and we had a really nice gym that was free because I was a university student. Mm. And after a couple of months, um, I was just starting to notice some differences and I was making friends and it was a nice break from class. And, uh, and I was just, I started to really get into the social culture of it mm -hmm. and, you know, got to know the, the people that worked there and, the, and, uh, and, you know, it was just, it, it was a university gym. So there was a lot of like young, attractive, fit people to hang out with. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and it was like, and, you know, and, and I was losing flab and starting to, you know, then I got into weightlifting. I was starting to build muscle and it's like, I'm kind of starting to feel like I belong here. So it was, yeah. it was rough to get started. Um, but uh, then, you know, I, I ended up uh, sticking with it long enough for, the passion to, uh, to, to kick in where, um, you know, there's been ups and downs and changes about what it is that I'm most excited about. And now I'm, I'm very much more a home gym person. I don't want to be, uh, uh, I, I used to love going to the gym, but mm. now it's like, okay, I work from home. The idea of actually driving to a gym, it's like, fuck that. I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Right. Right. Well, but it's it's interesting too because exercise is one of the best things. I mean, obviously that's that's great for anyone, but for ADHDers also exercise is is very important. And um my understanding is that because we lack dopamine receptors, we don't get as much dopamine. Um and and so we find we crave dopamine in different ways. And mm -hmm. exercise is one of those ways that you can really produce a lot of dopamine, um, which then satisfies you and and then you find that you can, you know, do a lot 
you could be a lot more focused on what you're working on after working out or after receiving that dopamine. That's why also with uh, ADHD or sort of undiagnosed addiction is uh, is quite likely. I mean, we're quite sus- oh, yeah. we're quite susceptible to that. And I've dabbled in uh, plenty of beer drinking in my, in my day. Um, so. So, yeah, so finding something, finding an outlet. I think a key thing there, too, by the way, is the fact that you found community uh, at school yeah. around the gym. And and mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, I think that's such an important thing, too, is finding finding community in the things that you're interested in. Because, you know, had you just been there by yourself, you may not have kept going back. I Yeah, I think at the time, like if I'd started by saying, okay, I'm going to buy a Bowflex or whatever and work mm-hmm. out at home, never would have worked. Whereas now, like I have quite a nice home gym down in my basement yeah. and, uh, and I like to, uh, I, I like working out by myself now because it's just so easy. It's, you know, sure. it's, it's 15 feet from my office and I've got the discipline now, but, right. uh, you know, my favorite thing I would say is cycling. Mm. Um, I like to run as well. Running is, um, I like the, what running does for me. I like the benefits the physical benefits of it mm-hmm. um but it's it's not quite as exciting as as cycling um and another thing about the running is that i can do it all through the winter um you will not get me on an indoor bike i've got to be outside mm-hmm. but you know for the for the winter i can run hard all winter long and then come spring like when the snow melts i can get on my bike and i'm automatically like in really good shape because i've been running so hard yeah that you know doing a lot of cycling if you go and try running you're gonna suck but if you run your ass off and then jump on a bike it takes like a week and you're good (laughs) (laughs) but i like this i like this speed associated with running there's a lot of adrenaline uh associated with it the scenery changes so fast it's like i go for a run and after like 12 kilometers it's like Okay, I'm I'm bored now. Uh, I I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Whereas cycling, I will go for, until I'm dead. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> like how much how much time do I got? Is my wife expecting me to come home and make dinner? Um, or or you know, am I utterly exhausted? Is my crotch hurt? Uh, that kind of stuff. So you know, I'll do like bike rides that are over a hundred kilometers long. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I did a, uh, I did a, I've been getting more and more into hiking. Like I really love mm-hmm. just getting into the woods and just clearing my head and thinking yeah. through life, whatever. And I went on a, a hike at a state park, not far from where I live, uh, uh, late summer. And I, I did this like, it, it's like a f- five, you know, mile loop or something, but there was like this backwood campsite. And so I thought, well, you know what, I'll do the loop and then I'll walk out to the campsite and go check that out. So I did that, but then realized like, Oh wait, I'm not on a loop anymore. Now I have to actually turn around and, and back <laughs> back to the, so by the end of it, I wa- I had hiked like 21 kilometers, oh, like wow. 13 miles and like, yeah. and, and it was like 30 celsius like heat like it was like hot hot out um 
And, uh, but I mean, I felt great, but similar. My wife was like, I thought you were going for like an hour hike. I hope you you had some water with you. (laughs) Yeah. Thankfully. Yes. I did have the camel back. Thankfully. So I was, uh, yeah, but that last stretch was just like, Oh my God, but it felt great, you know, and, and having lived to tell this tale, uh, (laughs) you know, feels good about that too. Um, but yeah, the other thing I like about the, um, especially the more intense cardiovascular aerobic exercise like running mm. is that you know one thing i do know about adhd is the the primary cor- comorbidity is anxiety mm. and um, i had started to experience more anxiety the last few years because i mean it has been a shit nato of ass that we've been living through. <laughs> yes <laughs> that, um that it, it really does just help i mean i don't know it's probably an unscientific analysis but i think when you exhaust yourself from a really intense workout mm. that it just kind of burns the anxiety off a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does, it does help uh, for sure. I mean, I think, it, uh, you know, and, and your sort of peak level stress, like so many others was in 2020, right? Like kind of peak yeah. pandemic and, and, you know, the political politics and all that good stuff that, that kind of led you to, to that, level of anxiety yeah. putting on 20 pounds too i believe uh yeah to a yeah. little more than that actually yeah yeah, yeah. But tell me about that actually it got worse um after the election mm-hmm. which was what led me to get diagnosed mm. and um it was the the thing that i that i figured out was that what was what was driving me crazy was my career success and so at first, so in 2020, there was three different things for me to worry about. Mm. One was, you know, the U.S. election. Even though I'm Canadian, I was just very stressed out about it. It's like, man, we that Trump cannot be reelected. <laughs> just yeah. I knew that, oh, yeah. that it was going to be horrible. And uh, and then of course COVID. Yeah, I was worried about uh, catching that, and mm-hmm. uh, and you know having something like I didn't, I wasn't worried about dying, but I was worried about, uh, being fucked up for a long time and having it, yeah. you know, he- the hearing horror stories about long COVID and stuff like that and not being able to exercise and, and, uh, and just having it, it having a really long-term negative effect on my health. Mm. And then the third thing was the career shift was that I had, my career was in the toilet and mm-hmm. then I started writing the history stories and um, they were very popular right out of the gate, but they weren't making me any money yet. Mm. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to make money. And then shortly after the election, I, um, I launched a Patreon Mm. and it, uh, I was very nervous about doing that because the thing about, about launching a Patreon is that, what if you don't get very many paid subscribers? Say you get enough to make 500 bucks a month. You still have to do the work to satisfy those paid subscribers. Yes. And, and I needed a lot more than 500 bucks a month. So it, it, and yet the, the research was showing that only 3% of Patreon creators made over a thousand. And it's like, for this to be worthwhile, I need to make, you know, several thousand mm-hmm. a month. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if there's that many people that are willing to give me money. Whereas my wife was like, 
your fucking column was read by five million people last month. Launch the goddamn Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I said, okay, fine. So I launched it and I hit like, you know, a thousand bucks a month in like two or three hours. And Wow, uh, that's great. And so I, within three months, I was in the top 30 for all writers on the platform, hmm. which led to Substack coming to me and offering me uh, a boatload of money to hmm. switch platforms. Mm -hmm. um, they said, you know, we're a much more writer-friendly platform um, and uh, we will give you a whole lot of money to switch. And I said, wow, that is a whole lot of money. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so I switched to Substack. So all of a sudden, you know, I'm, my financial woes are over. Yeah. And then I self-published the book on this day in history, shit went down and thinking, oh, this will probably do okay, but it's self-published. So I don't know how much money it's going to make. Mm. Well, my Facebook had been taking off like mad uh, and the book sold a stupid amount of copies. Mm. And when you, when you self-publish, your margins are great. Yeah. Uh, and so I was making so much more money than I could have imagined possible. And I didn't even have to do any public speaking. I just had to stay at home and swear at people on the internet. And, <laughs> uh, and it was, it was just financially was going so well. And then you couple that with, okay, Trump is out and the, the insurrection failed. And now I'm doubly vaccinated and I'm making just an ass load of cash. There's, there's so much that's just going well. Why am I still so fucking stressed out? Mm. And it was actually getting invited to give a talk about the link between ADHD and creativity, a TEDx talk in Romania mm. that I said, okay, well, I should probably do some research on this, mm -hmm. that it was, this was the, the kind of, a holy shit moment that made me realize why I was still so anxious. And what it was, was that people with ADHD, um, compared to those who don't have it, you have them engage in a creative endeavor. And if there is a reward associated with that creative endeavor, mm. those with ADHD will work much harder and mm. be much more focused to get the reward associated with being creative. Yeah. And that was exactly what was happening to me because being self-published and, you know, not so I would, I had the Substack where I could do creative sales pitches to get more paid subscribers and I could see it pay off instantly. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to write something that's going to get me more paid subscribers. And I would post it to Facebook or I would send it to my free subscribers and the conversions would come through and I would run the numbers. And I'm like, holy shit, that made me a thousand bucks and it took me 30 minutes. Hmm. And, uh, or I would write a creative ad to sell my self-published books and I would see that instantly I sold hundreds of books, which made a, you know, a whole bunch of money. And, uh, and so I became obsessed over the money because for 10 years I had made a very mediocre income as, I mean, for a writer, I did great yeah. but compared to a marketing executive, mm. uh, not, not nearly so much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. All of a sudden it's like, I have lost time to make up here. It's like, I'm shitting gold bricks. And I became very obsessed over the numbers of, I became very obsessed over making money because like literally everything I did after 10 years 
of trying all sorts of different things and only making, you know, moderate income, mm. all of a sudden everything I did worked mm -hmm. and, uh, and I could get more paid subscribers and I could sell more books and, uh, and you know, my, my income went up fivefold and then, then it went up, you know, tenfold. Yeah. And, and so I was, I was just so focused on that, that I was a ball of anxiety and I, I couldn't do anything else because, um, how can I, you know, go and work out when instead I could sit at my computer for an hour and, and make a whole bunch more money. Right. And, and so it became very tough to pull away from that. And it was the, uh, it was the Ritalin that helped because it allowed me to not obsess over it. Cause what I do is, is I get up in the morning and I will write and work and, and promote and all that kind of stuff. And then by about, you know, noon or one o'clock, that's like, okay, it's time to do other shit. It's time to work out, buy groceries, meal plan, housework, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's what allows me to step away from my computer mm -hmm. and, and do the other things that allow me to have a balanced life and not be stressed out. Yeah. But, but constantly sitting at your computer trying to figure out more and more ways to make more and more money, money that I didn't even need. Yeah. That, uh, that it was just like, Okay, you know, if I want to buy oceanfront property on Vancouver Island, I need that money. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of my dream. But it, it's it's not something that I was struggling to pay bills or anything. Yeah. That um, that it, it became this this obsession that that got me into this anxiety spiral. That uh, that I realized no, this didn't have anything to do with Trump or 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 COVID anymore. This was. This was about, you know, being obsessed about my career and it was the whole hyper fixation that the medication allowed me to not be so hyper fixated anymore. And then the next sort of step associated with that was a big book deal. Mm. So we, um, I, I did two books self-published. They did really well. Uh, and then, so my agent was able to get me a huge book deal with Bantam. Mm. And, um, and so the, the dynamic there changed because they gave me a huge advance. And now I'm instead of, now I'm looking at, uh, earning out my advance. It's, it's not a debt that you have to pay back, mm. but before I ever make another penny off of these two books, yeah. the advance has to earn out. And yep. it was a really big advance, so it's going to take a long fucking time. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm going to have to sell a lot of books. And yep. not only that, but the um, the margins on the per book is a lot lower because it's not self-published any longer. Right. So the obsession of being able to the obsession of chipping away at this this giant advance is far less than it was when it's like you know. Every every book I sold was X amount of dollars, and you sell a hundred books, and it's like, oh wow, that's quite a bit of money. Yeah. Um, so that that helped, and then now the the latest thing that I'm actually kind of ironically grateful for is Facebook fucking over all page owners uh, by killing our reach. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, I have over three hundred thousand followers on my Facebook page. Mm. And that was where 90% of my sales came from, yeah. uh, 
And uh, sometime around last spring, um, which interestingly was right when I unpublished my self-published books uh, in order to start promoting the new the new Bantam version. Yeah. Um, was right around when I saw my reach go to absolute shit. Mm. And it it went down by about 80%. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I'd seen ebbs and flows in the Facebook algorithm. Yeah. But this was not that. This was this was they they just killed it. And not just for me, but I have a lot of friends with big Facebook pages. Mm. And all of us, our reach just got absolutely nuked. And it's only gotten worse since then yeah and uh and so i made a decision fuck this place i'm done with it like 90 percent done with it yeah uh because it was just not paying off anymore i wrote a i had posted a, a piece on on january 1st saying that i've been posting to facebook four or five times a day for 13 years in order to promote my work and it has rewired my brain not in a good way um, but it's no longer paying off financially and it's no longer paying off in the dopamine hits yeah. either because I, my interaction has just gone to shit. Yeah. And so what I, what I've decided to do instead is that the one thing that's always continued to do well is e-newsletter that I have really high open rates. Uh, so I decided, all right, I am going to focus on my Substack e-newsletter instead because it's not dependent upon the algorithm. Mm. And um, you don't have to babysit it. You don't have to try and game the algorithm. People don't expect nearly as much interaction with an e-newsletter. And uh, and so uh, I I made this big announcement on January 1st, posted it to Substack, and then I paid Facebook to boost the post promoting – this announcement that basically said, fuck Facebook, I'm moving <laughs> largely to Substack. Yeah. And it worked. I paid them like 1500 bucks, and um, and I got, like I went from 21,000 to 33,000 uh, free subscribers in mm. a matter of a few days. And even though I wasn't asking for new paid subscribers, I got hundreds of new free ones or paid ones that more than paid for the campaign. Mm. So Smart, yeah. I- I am the, the campaign was actually really profitable. The ROI was huge, hmm. uh, at least four to one, and uh, and so I'm going to continue to to run these types of ads to milk my fate because the ads go to my three hundred thousand plus Facebook followers. Yeah, to continue to convince as many as I can to go to Substack mm-hmm. because it's much more reliable. They're going to get. Every new story, they're going to get an email. Whether they read it or not is up to them. Yeah. But it'll allow me to continue to sell books a lot better to grow that. And I'll get more paid subscribers. But also very important for me is that because my reach on Facebook has been killed, um, being ADHD, I was I was pretty addicted to Facebook. Mm-hmm. That was where that was where all the money was coming from. Mm-hmm. And it was not just giving me financial rewards, but dopamine rewards. But now both of those are gone. The financial rewards of Facebook are dead and the dopamine rewards are also gone. Yeah. So it's allowing me to make a pretty clean break where I'm not I haven't given up on Facebook 100%. 
I've gone from, you know, uh, 25 to 30 posts a week to three. Mm -hmm. And it's largely promoting when I have a new story that's on Substack, I will link it on Facebook and say, here you go. Uh, by the way, while you're there, fucking subscribe because Facebook sucks now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so that, you know, strategically, financially, it made a lot of decision, but emotionally, it made a lot of sense for me too, because I had been trying to, to restrain my Facebook addiction for years. Yeah. And it finally took the company screwing me over to break the habit. It's something that I've been telling people for many years, you know, especially earlier on in my digital marketing space that when I was doing that, and even as a speaker for Google, uh, you know, I would remind people that like you are, you're building your business on the rented land, you know, like you don't own it. Uh, like email marketing, you own, assuming you're backing up that list. Yeah. But, but, you know, at least with email, you can email your your friends, fans, followers and, and let them know, hey, we're moving over here now and hopefully they'll follow. Otherwise, if Facebook or whatever the social network is, it locks you out. And I learned this back in 07 or 08, maybe I went to use Twitter on a Friday and it said your account has been suspended due to suspicious activity. And I didn't do anything. And I'm like, what the yeah. hell? It was a mistake. And so, but it was this realization. I actually spoke to uh, Nora Young, who runs Spark on CBC about it, an old, old podcasting comrade and broadcasting comrade. Um, but yeah, we talked about it because it, I had this realization that, yeah, I mean, Twitter owned my Rolodex, so to speak, and, and now I couldn't contact anybody. And I didn't know some people's real names because Twitter could be anonymous. Right. This is back when Twitter was actually something worth going to. I don't advi right. advise that anymore. Um, but it is interesting. So Substack seems like a, a logical, smart move for you. Are you doing like retargeting to target people that go to your Facebook page elsewhere online? So like remarketing, retargeting or? Um, no, it's just, I've just been boosting, uh, just been boosting the posts yeah, yeah. to people who already follow Yeah, because those are people, they already know who I am. They followed me. They like my work. Yeah. It's just, and the thing is when I made that, I've only done one ad so far and mm. it worked out so well. Like it, I went from 21,000 to 33,000 free, yeah, yeah. uh, plus got a few hundred paid with one ad. And it was, you know, it was the important announcement, but I'm, I realized that, you know, when I was selling my book, um, I had to hit people again and again and again to convince them to buy. Mm. And I know that I'm going to have to hit people again and again to convince them to subscribe. Mm. And a lot of people's like, oh, well, I don't want to use, give you my email. It's like, it's so much spam or whatever. Um, there's also an app. So, you know, you could use that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, the thing is that. Uh, that I, I was I was told years ago uh, in a uh, at, it was actually at a fitness conference and this guy was a, a fitness marketing expert saying that you know Facebook is is you you can't trust social media you need to build an email list yep and I shrugged it off because it was so expensive mm -hmm. um, the numbers for uh, Mailchimp were stupid and yeah. i wasn't making a lot of money back then i thought mailchimp was a ripoff mm. and i didn't have a product to sell i was living off of freelancing 
Mm-hmm. And my books were traditionally published, so I didn't have a lot of motivation to do that either. Mm. Then you get something like Substack comes along, which I think is totally changed the landscape for people in mm-hmm. two different ways. I think that, you know, you don't necessarily need, like I used to have my own blog on a WordPress website yeah, and it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> the user interface sucks. It can, you know, you have to pay a lot for hosting. You have to worry about hacking and crashes and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, if I had a blog post that was really popular, it would, the website would crash and it was just, it was such a pain in the ass. Mm. And then you've also got, um, if you want to email people, MailChimp and others were so expensive. It's like, how the fuck do you justify mm-hmm. this cost? I don't remember what it was, but I was like, no, I can't afford that. That's bullshit. Yeah. And now we've got Substack where everything's free. It is both a blog and an e-newsletter at the same time. Yeah. And it doesn't cost a damn thing. And you don't have to worry about, um, you know, it's always, they've got their own IT people to make sure it's always running. It's always up. You own your content. You own your email list. You can download it at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, they make their money because they want you to go paid. Mm-hmm. And if you start having paid subscriptions, which I do, and I make quite a bit of money from, they take a sizable chunk. I think they end up taking about 18%. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of very big names with huge followings making a ton of money and they get their taste. Yeah. So that's how it works. It's kind of a win-win. And, and yeah, it's win-win and it's it's easy. It's the, you know, the UI is, you know, I, I treat computers like a glorified typewriter. So for me, just to be able to, you know, copy and paste directly over from Word, maybe throw some photos in or whatever, um, it it works well for yeah. me. Yeah. And, uh, and so I just want to continually you know, every few weeks I'll come up with a new type of enticement campaign to get more and more people from Facebook to subscribe. And, you know, I've set a goal by the end of the year to have a hundred thousand free subscribers Mm. and, uh, and that will more than make up for the fact that Facebook has killed my reach. Yeah. And I also, you know, Substack is just, it doesn't have that addictive engagement factor like with facebook you're always trying to game the algorithm get more engagement more engagement whereas with substack it's just so much more straightforward you know you might want to you you will engage in some of the comments and stuff like that and reply to questions and and you know people want to hear from you but it's the degree is so much less and and with a place like substack or patreon or whatever you're not expected to constantly be at everyone's beck and call. Yeah. People are going there to read you, not necessarily to to have you be beholden to them like they are with social media. True. And overall, I think social media is kind of dying. I think people are getting sick of it. I, I agree. It's had it, it's had its day. Yeah. And um and I think a big part of that is that it sucks now. Uh you look at your Facebook feed and you're getting um the reason why Facebook killed our reach was to drive uh, advertising revenue. Yeah. And it, it worked. They killed our reach. And then a bunch of companies with deep marketing, uh, pockets, uh, started paying. So a lot of the stuff that you're seeing in your feed now is shit from some content farm that, uh, (laughs) that paid for you to see it. 
and you're not seeing what you what you liked and followed you're not seeing what you engage with you're you're seeing some of it but a lot of it is crap so people people don't care about that anymore um there's an author science fiction author cory doctorow came up with the term in shitification <laughs> of social media yeah and he wrote a excellent post that was in wired magazine magazine a year ago that described all of this he talked about tiktok and he went into detail about uh tiktok and facebook and, mm. and twitter about how it's it's not fun anymore it's not giving us what we want anymore and it's killing itself uh because people are just tuning out it's like you know what facebook used to be great and it's just not now so why would i why would i want to spend time there when it just sucks yep and uh and it was um they they had to do it for financial reasons i guess but i think they're all dying because it's become you know toxic from a from a well spreading fascism point of view but it's also uh it's also just not you know we're seeing these shitty content farm paid posts now yeah instead of what we've chosen to see and uh yeah i I, i'm okay i'm okay with the death of social media (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm uh i'm with you on a a lot of that and now even um i hate to bring it up but since we're talking about it now Substack's not without its own uh uh controversies these days and i I don't know if you're hearing any of that from your I, I have not addressed that mm. personally, but mm. since you asked, um, I will address it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I have two things to say about that. Yeah. Um, one is that one of the reasons why I haven't publicly written about it, I, I probably will at some point, mm. but is because other people already have addressed it very well. Yeah. Um, and there, you know, there's two ways to go that, uh, that yes, they are platforming Nazis. And uh, and there are Nazis that are making money off of Substack with mm. their uh, via their paid subscriptions, and uh, and I mean without getting into all the details, I understand why they're doing it. But the big one is that content moderation is both very expensive; it has no ROI, and um, and it can lead to a slippery slope because it's never good enough if you if you. Um, start deplatforming certain people, then it's like, well, what about this one? What about this one? Mm-hmm. Um, the slippery slope argument is not a great one, but it's still it's 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 a reality that's part of the overall argument of why I can understand why they don't want to do it. But the other thing is that you know I'm seeing people that are saying um, that uh, okay, Nazis will invade every single space and. If the people who are anti-Nazi leave, then they will drive us out of everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you know, we we have to not allow ourselves to be driven out of this space, or it will become nothing but Nazis. Which, again, I mean, I, there's there's some holes in that argument, but but that's the one that that I'm choosing to side with. I also understand if someone says, well. Substack is platforming Nazis, so fuck this place. I'm out of here. I respect that decision. I admire you for doing it. Mm. Um, so that's the one thing that that 
that I would say about it. The other thing is that you cannot trust a single thing that I have to say about whether or not you should stay on Substack. And the reason is motivated reasoning. Mm. I have motivated reasoning coming out the ass because I make a lot of money off of Substack. And if I left, if I decided to go somewhere else, I can't take all of those paid subscribers with me. I have to convince every single one of them to subscribe. And I've been there with the move from Patreon to Substack. When I went from Patreon to Substack, only like 30% Mm. re-upped because Mm. that's just, you know, it's, it's the inertia thing. So Mm -hmm. if I make the, the, you know, high moral standards decision to move to another platform, my income is going to take a massive hit. Mm. And I'm seeing that a lot of people that are moving, that are taking their big subscription bases, they, a lot of them are free. They don't, they have free newsletters. They're not, they don't have paid subscribers or if they do, they don't have a lot or maybe they just don't need the money. But, um, you know, there, there's, it would be a massive financial hit for me to do it. Mm. And so therefore I am, I am financially motivated to believe those that say we should stay and fight. (laughs) Right. And so as a result, yes, I acknowledge that I'm financially motivated and therefore I have a bias to believe those that say, no, don't leave. Mm. Um, and, and so that, that's why, uh, I can't even trust what I say myself because I know that there's a significant financial reward, but you know, you look at, okay, Dan Rather's still there and Dan Rather's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, Heather Cox Richardson has a massive following yeah. and I'm sure makes a lot of money. Robert Reich is still there. I, I follow all of them. Yeah. Um, they're not leaving. And, uh, so I say, well, fine, you know, if it's good enough for them to stay in and talk about how much Nazis suck, then, then I can do it too. Yeah. And I think the great name for the article when you do write it should be called nothing but Nazis, (laughs) (laughs) which sounds like a Toys R Us for like racists or something. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so let's, I want to take a step back for a minute and talk a little bit about um, your uh, your use of Ritalin without diagnosis in college, not as obviously as a as a party drug or anything like that. Yeah, no, but it was not a party drug. No, no, you were drug. yeah, you were trying to kind of get through things. But um, I, I, and this is a topic that's come up before, where I've learned that like a lot of a lot of college kids actually get their hands on some sort of stimulants uh, as a way to help you know, study for, for exams and so forth. Um, but it's interesting because it affects different people differently. Mm -hmm. And obviously those with ADHD, um, they're like, you know, you're like suddenly, Oh, well, hold on. (laughs) Like this might actually help me. Yeah. It Um, wasn't, it wasn't a stay awake. It wasn't a stay awake drug. This wasn't a cram all night drug. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a translation device, Mm -hmm. uh, because, so it was my first semester of MBA, and they, there's a lot of mandatory classes that I had to take that I just, my brain could not be wrapped around. Operations management and accounting were the two that I just, I couldn't decipher it. It was like reading fucking Klingon. Right. Uh, it just, it made no sense to me whatsoever. What about Krebs cycle? 
well that 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 came, <laughs> that came later yeah <laughs> um, so that was uh i w- without going into detail how um i got my hands on some ritalin mm. and i would take it and yeah it wasn't like okay this is it's 3 a.m and i need to keep studying this was the middle of the day i was well rested it's just i needed to take this so i could understand it so i could decipher it mm. and uh and it was like i took it and then 30 minutes later it's all of a sudden it's like Wow, this is actually sinking in. I actually, I actually get this. And it was the most bizarre sensation. Yeah. To just feel my brain change from one minute to the next to, um, when it's like all of a sudden uh, the words on the page and the numbers on the page started to make sense. And it was, it was bizarre, but I didn't, I didn't have any idea at the time that I was ADHD. Like I should have clued in. That should have been a clue, but it, I just, I was oblivious. It didn't, it didn't make any sense to me. And I think it's because I didn't understand what ADHD oh, yeah. was. Sure. I, I didn't know what it, what it was or how it could manifest. Well, you probably also, I mean, you probably also assumed that the, your, you know, your, your peers and other students or, or friends who were also taking Ritalin, you were probably assuming they had the same effect. I mean, it has, if, if you're neurotypical, it's going to affect you differently than if you're yeah. neurodiverse or certainly with ADHD. So, you know, results may vary, I guess. Yeah. So it, it's, it, it was bizarre the way it worked. So it got me through my first semester and my second semester, mm-hmm. I didn't have classes that were nearly so difficult. And then in my second year, I got to basically choose what I was doing and it was, mm-hmm. I didn't, take it again. I didn't yeah. need it again. And, uh, and then, um, years later, many years later, uh, like a decade later, I've decided that, okay, I want to be a fitness writer. And in order to do that, I should have some type of certification. Hmm. Uh, so I went and got the, the most respected, most difficult, certification there was the certified strength and conditioning specialist which Mm. is basically a gigantic textbook that i had to memorize Mm. and there was a lot of stuff that that was easy for me because it was um you know stuff about nutrition and and exercise and and technique and and motivation all this stuff was I was interested in, it was easy to understand. Um, I didn't have a problem with it, but once we started getting down to, you know, more cellular level Krebs cycle bullshit (laughs) again, Mm. it was like, I don't get it. Like I just can't, no matter how many times I read it, it doesn't sink in. And so again, sourced myself some, some Ritalin Mm. and, uh, again, translated Klingon into English and uh and pass the test yeah so that was uh but then it was again that was like 2008 2000 yeah i think it was 2008 Mm. and uh and then didn't take it again for years and years until it felt like i was flying apart in the seams a couple of years ago yeah um with anxiety and and because i'd become obsessed over my work it's really interesting with the anxiety uh, as a comorbidity for ADHD because yeah, I didn't know this either. And in fact, my, 
this year. So uh, since being diagnosed last year, you know, I met with my doctor. I was di- I was you know di- diagnosed and and prescribed some uh, stimulants, and you know results may vary with that too. So like I, I you know we were trying different things at different doses for different periods of time wasn't really seeing the results I wanted to see. So I started seeing a psychologist with an expertise expertise in ADHD. And so she changed my meds and the dose and we started along a better path. Um, Mm -hmm. But because of uh, anxiety with my own kind of work and things like that, um, we paused everything and started, she started treating me for my anxiety Mm-hmm. And then she reintroduced the stimulants once we got the meds right for the anxiety. And so right. now we're like at this part, at this point here, we're like experimenting with the dose of the stimulants, but the the meds for the anxiety have, have definitely been been helping me. So mm-hmm. um, plus therapy as well. So that's, you know, that's an interesting thing because like uh, Dr. Russell Barkley did a, a who's kind of a, a wonderful resource and, and expert in the space. Um, you know, he he reviewed like multiple studies and found that the average person with undiagnosed and untreated uh, ADHD can have a 13-year less life expectancy than somebody with treated uh, who's getting treatment. So it could be up to 13 years less. It's important to to see your doctor and, and you know, get diagnosed yeah, I, and treated. I, th- I think that, I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. And mm-hmm. I think addiction... Oh, uh, 100%. Um, yeah. And I mean, I've had, uh, you know, struggles with, uh, well, I don't want to say struggles, but yeah, I've, I've definitely had to be careful with my alcohol intake. Mm-hmm. And um, and the uh, also with uh, food, mm. the, the, the thing about, the, the only thing that really helps me control my appetite is running. Mm. Um, I, I have to, to run a lot uh, in order to just presate those reward pathways in my brain yeah. so that they're not craving booze and junk food. Yeah. And uh, that's the only way that I've ever been able to keep my, my weight under control. Yeah, you're getting the dopamine. So, yeah, so it's... Uh, it's I'm pretty good at at self-reflection mm. and you know realizing that uh, that I've taught myself a lot of tricks on yeah. how to how to you know deal with this and and um, but but still the, uh, the the medication was the big one for helping me not obsess over work because it's still, a bit of an issue like for example you know this new book came out early october mm-hmm. and and i wanted it to be a big success so of course i spent a few months promoting the shit out of it and uh, and so that was you know there was some work obsession going on there mm-hmm. and then now i've got this transition to trying to get as many people over to substack and seeing the the part of the issue is that one ad campaign worked really well. So of course it's like, eh, gotta do more. <laughs> you know? Right, so, right. Yeah. So I have to be careful that I don't get sucked down that rabbit hole again. But the 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 one nice thing is okay, I'm 55 years old. And um and like I said, I I could stop working now and and be fine. I'd never have to work again, mm. financially speaking. 
and I keep uh, also I had I had to have a I had a major health scare last September and had to have surgery mm. and had to work through that with the book launch, which was a drag. Mm. Uh, and I'm still recovering. It's uh, and still getting back to it was shitty. I'd finally gotten back to running and I ran a half marathon. And then right after the half marathon, I had this nothing to do with the race. Like mm. I, I, I had a really good time. I was like, yeah, I'm back. I'm back to running and I'm losing this COVID weight and everything's great. And then yeah. all of a sudden I had this major health issue and needed to get surgery and all that kind of shit. Mm. And, and so that totally derailed that. Uh, but now I'm slowly crawling back to, to, uh, my fitness again and, um, and the the health issue has kind of given me a a new perspective as well, where it's like, you know, I'm here for uh, may not be here for a long time. So <laughs> it's not, yeah. you know, it's not cancer. It's the 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 surgery solved the problem, mm. but it just it makes you not uh, not quite so certain about what comes next. And the last thing I want to do is die with a whole bunch of money in the bank that I never got a chance to spend. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so I, uh, it, it has helped me uh, in terms of, of just relax a little bit more and, and, you know, focus on my fitness and my health and having fun and, and, uh, and doing some more traveling and things like that. And the thing is that, you know, I can, I can still, without obsessing and without having to work too hard, still make a lot of money. Uh, and, and so there's the difference between making a lot and making a ridiculous amount mm. and the making the ridiculous amount, is going to drive me crazy. <laughs> and, and whereas, so it's like, it, I've had to convince myself that it's okay to only make a lot. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's not a bad problem to have. Yeah. So it's, and and the funny thing is that, um, you know, I've told some people is I went into writing to get rich, which is the stupidest thing that, that you will ever hear because it is not a career that is conducive to making a lot of money. Right. But I had delusions of grandeur. And the thing is that I knew that if I was ever going to make a lot of money, that writing was going to be it. And the reason why is the whole product versus service type of income that you can generate. That I knew that if I could create a product that people wanted, that mm-hmm. the sky was the limit. You know, my first book didn't sell that great. I made, I don't know, maybe $3 an hour. And my second book, I made maybe $8 an hour. Mm. And I don't know what it is on the latest book, but it's it's a hell of a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't run the numbers, but yeah. it's if you have a product that takes off, it doesn't require any additional work except for you know some of the promotion, yeah. but you can make more and more money off of it. And I, I felt that I had what it took that if I kept experimenting and trying that eventually something would hit it only took 12 years and a very well-paid supportive spouse yes but eventually i found the niche that took off for me and now it's not just books but also substack like Mm -hmm. every month um i get a good income from my paid subscribers and if my paid subscribers triple i don't need to do three times as much work yeah 
I need to do the exact same amount of writing to satisfy those paid subscribers. And the only real work is like, you know, the promotion to get more and more, but that's not a lot. That's yeah. just, you know, your, your sales and promotion shit to, to get more and more, but there's no additional, you know, the, the stuff that I write for my paid subscribers is still a product that where the sky is the limit that, you know, I could make, um, I could have way more paid subscribers and make way more money, but I don't need, it doesn't mean I need to write more content mm. for them. Mm -hmm. And so that was why I, I went into it, but now it's like, okay, well, we'll just, you know, how, how much is it enough? And I've, I've kind of figured out that I can, I can not stress too much and not work too hard and, and make a, you know, a, a very good ongoing income that will finance, you know, uh, nice vacations and help our kids buy houses and that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and I can live my life and, uh, and, and write what I want to write yeah. instead of writing what I think is going to sell. Yeah. Which is really important for, for writers. Absolutely. James, this has been awesome. Are there any questions, anything I didn't ask that you would like to share or, no, I think I've rambled a lot in true ADHD fashion. So I think we ended up, we covered it all and then some. <laughs> yeah, no, this has been, this has been really great. And I wish you all the, all the best moving forward. Uh, it sounds, um, and I'll make sure that, uh, you know, to include links to everything we talked about today so that folks can, can find you and connect with you. Where, where can they, uh, where is the best place for folks to check you out, subscribe and learn more about Mr. James Fell? I mean, the easiest thing to, I mean, you could just Google my name, James Fell, and you'll find it all. Mm -hmm. uh, but jamesfell.com is my website. Uh, and there's links to buy my book there. If you click on blog from jamesfell.com, yeah. it takes you to my Substack, which is jamesfell.substack.com. Cool. Well, thanks a million, man. This has been great. Oh, thanks so much, Dave. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Hey, thanks for listening to Wise Squirrels. It has been amazing to share this with you best way to show your support for the show leave us a review follow the show and share it with the people in your life we drop new episodes every two weeks so stay tuned for that plus drop by wisequirrels.com or click the link in the podcast description and you'll find a lot of different resources like articles a an assessment a newsletter lots of good stuff over at wisequirrels.com so drop by let me know what you think, and we'll see you next time. Take care.